the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And every weekday at 4 on AM 630, The Word, we take your phone calls and your Bible questions, life questions, or anything else that's on your heart or on your mind, and we'll do the best that we can to provide some answers. We've had lots of questions that have been sent in, but we would love your live calls. It makes the show more interesting. You can call us by dialing 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email us your questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send them in that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit one button that says call now and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, We have Bible study tonight, but before I even go there, uh, please pray tomorrow. Our kids and youth camps begin. Uh, pray for safety. Pray that these kids would hear uh, the, the, the heart of the Lord. Uh, pray that their lives would be changed forever. I would appreciate that very, very much. It's still not too late to sign your kids up. I've been saying all week, I just got chewed out by my producer here, that uh, I've been saying you can register online. You can't register for this online, uh, but you can come to the church. Um, we're going to have Bible study tonight, so you might as well come. This is always one of the least attended nights. This and Friday, because everybody's gone Friday, but everybody's getting ready to go uh, tonight. Uh, so we'll have plenty of room. Uh, We'd love to have you. It's a good Bible study, 2 Samuel chapter 17. But you could sign your children up, and we'd love for them to be able to join us. Uh, So all of that starts tomorrow, and I would so covet your prayers. Uh, Also tomorrow, of course, is the date day edition of the program. That means Paula will be live in studio uh, with me. It's a program that we dedicate especially to you ladies. Uh, So whatever's on your heart, Paula can encourage or help you. Please call tomorrow. Um, and again, I said our Bible study tonight at 7 o'clock, 2 Samuel chapter 17. One more time, 340-9585. Let's get to some questions. Here is from our email inbox from Juan. He says, recently a well-known pastor said that believers should focus their attention on New Testament teachings as opposed to the Old Testament. What are your thoughts? Juan, I think that is silly. That's like saying we don't need to read a book, we can go right to the cliff notes. Now, obviously, for the practical application that is so so fills the New Testament, um, clearly, we need to understand that we need to have a, a relationship with that. We have two New Testament studies a week uh, on Friday nights and on Sunday, different books, um, and only one Old Testament study a week. Um, um, so, so we emphasize um, to a greater degree the New Testament, um, but but to miss out on the, the beauty, the majesty 
of the Old Testament is to to deprive yourself of of just the whole story, the prophecies, the history. Uh, I'm a history nut, so the historical books mean so much to me. For those of you who are more emotional, for those of you who are more emotional, um, the poetic books, Job and Psalms and 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 uh, uh, Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. So all of those books have great, great value. Uh, one, one of the things that uh, I like to explain about the Old Testament, I don't know how old you are, but um, when I grew up, we used to have um, connect the dots coloring books. And you connect the dots following the numbers, and then you'd color in the pictures. Well, before you could color in and get the whole picture, you had to, you had to connect the dots. Well, the Old Testament is like that connect the dots outline. And the New Testament fills it in and gives it life. So I, I disagree very strongly with this pastor. Um, I know pastors that teach only from the New Testament, and I personally believe that they are um, not serving their churches as they should be. So one, I hope that answers your question. Here is uh, from our mobile app. This one is from Jessica. Uh, she wants to know, do I think Martin Luther was anti-Semitic? I was asked, but I didn't know. Uh, I'm not real good at church history, although I would like to know more. Uh, Jessica, there is value in studying church history. But I think the real value is understanding that the church has always been messed up. Martin Luther is just a really great example. You know, people didn't have any more insight in the uh, what we call the church fathers and those th- than we have now. Uh, there was so much, if you read the, the doctrine, some of the doctrine is so horrible and so off, and yet we always quote those people like just being old or having been around at the beginning gives them some sort of credibility. Uh, I think studying church history gives us a, a sense of humility. Um, so often we think we're so right about something, and, and should the Lord tarry a hundred years or a thousand years or, or, or three thousand years from now? Um, God forbid, please come quickly, Jesus. But if that's the case, um, they're probably going to read about some things that we wrote. And listen to some of the teachings we did, and they're going to be thinking, wow, what messed up doctrine. Um, so the idea is that church has always been fallible. And because we're fallible, um, we ought not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Um, the, the history of the church is littered with God using imperfect people. Martin Luther is one such case. Uh, Martin Luther was anti-Semitic. He um, was so anti-Jew, anti-Israel. Uh, his writings are legendary. I mean, if you would read some of the things that he's written, you'd wonder, is this guy even saved? Now, obviously, we know he was. So it's just an example of God using imperfect people to accomplish amazing things. There's no doubt that Martin Luther is a giant in church history. Um, but but really, he was just somebody that wanted to make the Catholic Church a little more faithful to the biblical narrative. Uh, he, he didn't want to escape sort of what I call the bondage of Catholicism. Um, he just wanted to, for the Catholic Church doctrine to get it right. And we're not saved by belonging to the church. We're not saved by works. And his understanding as it relates to Jews was that they rejected Jesus. God was done with them. And uh, you will find in many Lutheran lives and in many Lutheran churches today, there is uh, a teaching that God has done with Israel, um, that um, uh, Israel has no place in the millennial kingdom of God. In fact, many Lutherans don't even believe in the millennial kingdom. Um, But um, they just completely dismiss uh, Israel in any role, uh, discounting prophecy. There's a case relative to Juan's question a minute ago, where if we had a solid foundation in the Old Testament, we'd be protected from these kind of things. But yes, Martin Luther was anti-Semitic. He said horrible, horrible things. Um, I don't know, um, as he um, approached his death, if any of those things changed. The things that I have read that he's written, uh, Jessica, make it appear that he didn't. Uh, and I promise you there would have been a, a, a big straightening out session the minute he went to heaven. But I'm also very confident that he's in heaven 
we wonder sometimes how God could use somebody who's so wrong in such an area. Um, it's because God is going to use us to accomplish his will in spite of who we are. One other thing that I want to say about some of Martin Luther's contemporaries, uh, John Calvin um, has some anti-Jewish writings. Um, um, it, it was, we're all to some degree, they were certainly uh, a, a function of the time that they lived in. Um, but that's who it was. You know, it's interesting that the Lutheran church in Germany um, disappeared um, when Hitler's Nazi party was coming into power. Again, that's why understanding the Bible is so important. We can even go further into our history um, as, as a nation, go back to the time of slavery. Uh, there were a lot of people who were considered faithful men of God who promoted, even approved of slavery. It just, again, shows that doesn't mean they weren't saved. It means they were wrong, and God used imperfect people to accomplish his will. So, Jessica, I hope that helps. Thank you for listening, and thank you for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is Nacho from our email inbox. Should the New Testament church still practice excommunication for a believer who is in unrepentant sin? Not you, yeah. The answer is yes. I don't like the idea or even the word or the understanding of excommunication in the sense that the Catholic Church has given it a negative connotation. Um, What we're to do is, is take the cue from the Apostle Paul. Uh, he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about a man, uh, evidently a very influential man, probably a, a very generous man in terms of, of giving, uh, maybe even the way the emphasis is given, put on him, uh, maybe even a leader in the church in Corinth. And he was having sex with his stepmother, um, and and the church apparently knew about it and they were sort of winking an eye about it and talking about it behind his back and when Paul heard that this was going on he said I've already passed judgment on such a man he said put him out of the church I've handed him over to Satan now this is the important part for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul on that day the day of judgment will be raised well it worked And sadly, we don't do that anymore. You know, um, I'm sure it's different or was different back then. But now in this day and age of just emphasizing trying to fill seats, we just want people there. We want giving units. That's what church marketers call you, by the way, when you go to church. You're a giving unit. And we want giving units. And so we have a tendency to look away from sin. We don't judge, you know, that's between you and the Lord. Uh, but, but we really need to call out sin. I had a question yesterday about John MacArthur. One of the things I so admire about John MacArthur is uh, he and his church in, in Panorama City, California, has always dealt with sin this way. And they have put a lot of people out of the church over the years when, in fact, when he took the job as a very, very young man, he was told that if he did that, there'd be nobody in the church. And his response was, well, I happen to believe God. I happen to believe his word. That means we have to deal with sin. And, of course, we know that the church, John's been around for 50 years and has done a marvelous, marvelous job uh, in this area in particular. So what we should do, Nacho, is very lovingly but very directly confront people who are in sin. If somebody's having sex with somebody they're not married to, we, we have professing Christians to our shame who cohabit, they live together. Um, we have people that drink all the time and people know it and don't say anything because we're so afraid of judging. Um, the word demands that we go to them and tell them that people live like you're living. The Bible says we'll not inherit the kingdom of God. We need to be more concerned about their souls than about their friendship. So in theory, Nacho, we should still tell people once they've refused correction, we should still tell them 
that they're unwilling, since they're unwilling to stop sinning, that they're no longer welcome at the church. If they want to get right, if they want to repent, then we, with open arms, welcome them back. And of course, as I said a moment ago, that's what happened in the case of the man in Corinth. Second Corinthians 2 talks about his return and his restoration. So that's what we need to do. And unfortunately, in our church culture, if you offend somebody, they just go find another church, and it's easier to do that with a, instead of instead of repenting of your sin. So uh, yes, I think we should put people out who are in unrepentant sin. Um, but again, I don't like the term excommunication. That is primarily a Catholic term. Here is a question from our mobile app. This one is from Chris. In Genesis chapter 6, did the Nephilim actually possess men and have relations with women? Um, Chris, we don't know if it was an enemy. Um, We don't know if they just possess men or if they actually appeared to be men. Now, uh, I always look forward to Genesis chapter 18 and 19 when... um, Jesus with the destroying angels uh, who appeared as men went into Sodom and the men in Sodom thought they could have sex with the destroying angels and that was the the, the thing that caused the the judgment to fall. Um, So so I don't know. I, I think these were men of renown. We know that they were famous. We might better say infamous. Um, who were the offspring of a sexual relationship, the sons of God and the daughters of men. That distinction is too significant to notice. Sons of God never, ever is used in any other context than to describe angels. In this case, they would have been demons or fallen angels. And the distinction is purposeful. Not only is the distinction purposeful, but the judgment that comes, this worldwide flood that God pronounces, um, is so extreme that this had to be uh, a sin that was um, not solvable any other way. So um, we think this was, I think personally, that this was the devil's attempt to so pollute the human race that um, God had to wipe the human race out. And um, God always has a remnant. That remnant had to be Noah and his family. There's no other way to explain. Now, the view that I've just explained, Chris, uh, is a view that is rejected by many because they simply say, well, angels can't procreate, and there's no instant. This is, this is just pagan literature. Um, Genesis 6 is not pagan literature. And there is no other way, frankly, there's no other way to describe that chapter with a consistent hermeneutic. And there's no other way to explain the harsh judgment of the flood unless this was the case. Why else would God have to start over? Well, the answer is because these were these giants, these men of renown, um, who were the offspring of angels, fallen angels, um, infiltrating the human race. So, Chris, again, I know a lot of people have trouble with that view, but um, as I said, there's no other way to explain it. Here is a question from Clint. He says, when we encounter Christians really struggling with sin or depression, it seems that the normal answer is for them to pray more or to get in the Word more or to get more involved in church. Aren't there more practical things that we can tell them? You know, uh, Clint, one of the sad things about our church culture is uh, we always take the easy way out. When there's an easy way out, we don't really dig in. And uh, it's almost like, well, okay, Pray more, read more, uh, serve more, and all your problems will go away. It's like take two aspirin and your headache will go away. Um, problems aren't that simple. What we need to do, and, and the more practical thing, the only practical thing we can do, is, is to turn them away from the things that they're struggling with and turn them to Jesus. You see, that's what a Christian counselor is supposed to do. 
it's not enough for me to say, well, you know, you need to stop sinning. You've got to teach them how to stop sin, uh, to stop sinning. Um, it doesn't tell them, uh, no, there's no value for me to tell them to pray more if they're still struggling with sin because the sin is in the way of their prayers being answered. Um, reading the Bible um, is a great thing to do, but you have to teach people what to do with the Bible. So um, serving is a wonderful thing, and everybody who's in a church at all ought to be serving. That's how God uses the gifts that he's given you to benefit the greater body. So those aren't the answers. Um, I've told my staff pastors, because they do some counseling uh, here as well, that I don't want anybody just to get the pat answers. Oh, you know, just get closer to Jesus. Uh, We kind of put our arms around people and hurt with them and show them the way. Now, it is true that if you're with Jesus, you're not going to be depressed. It is true that if you're with Jesus, you're going to win the struggle with sin. But what we've got to do is understand that this is a work of faith. And we've got to help them take those steps of faith so that they can practically experience the reality of Christ in them, the hope of glory. So we Christians, we need to stay away from the pat answers. We need to avoid the snap judgments where we see somebody struggling. Well, boy, they must really be in sin. Put your arms around them. Love them. It's our responsibility as believers to do that very thing. So, Clint, do me a favor. When you see somebody really struggling with sin or depression, take them for a walk and talk to them. Pray for them and with them. Show them in the Word where there are practical answers for the sin that they're struggling with. I'll just give you one example, and I could give you 50 but 1 Corinthians 10, 13, somebody who's struggling with sin, come to memorize it and then explain to you what it means. If they'll memorize that, if they'll believe that, then they can see light at the end of the tunnel. Their struggles will be over. So those are the things. By the way, depression, um, depression is real, but there are different types Sometimes we're depressed because we're so focused on us and not on Jesus. Other times there are um, um, chemically induced depressions. Uh, there, there are clinical depressions. Um, there are overwhelming grief and circumstances that cause depression. And in that case, what we've got to do is teach people to set their hearts and minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Not just give them a Bible verse like an aspirin. But explain to them what it means. Explain to them how that works in our lives. If we'll do that, I promise you God will use you to minister to so many people. You know, counseling is, and I didn't mean to do all this, Clint, but uh, counseling is just another way of teaching the Bible. Counseling is not putting your arm around somebody and saying, it's going to be okay, baby. That's, That's not counseling. Counseling always begins with, do you want to be made well? That's what Jesus said to the cripple at the pool of Bethesda. Do you want to be made well? And he was honest. I have nobody to help me get into the water. But, but yeah, I'd like to be made well. And Jesus gave me the opportunity. Sometimes as a counselor, we've got to tell people, and this is usually where my counseling always begins. Are you here to get help and you're so convinced that you're going to get help that you're going to do what I tell you to do? Now, by the way, everything I tell people to do is straight out of the Word. But if they say, well, well, no, then there's no point in continuing the counseling. I'm not selling them a car. I mean, I'm not trying to persuade them of something. I'm trying to find out where their heart is. And if they're not going to stop doing the bad things and start doing the right things, well, then they're just not ready to get better yet. Their answer to Jesus, do you want to get well, be no, not yet. I want you to fix things for me. I want you to make me feel better, but I'm not ready to stop sinning. So that's what we need to do. We need to be that direct with people. So, Clint, hope that helps. Thank you for the question. We've got two minutes. Let me give you a phone number again for the second half of the program, 340-9585 for um, your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question. 
You know, I'm going to leave this one to the other side of the break because this one is going to take more than the time that we have. Here's a question from Rod. I am a new believer. Where do I start in my new faith? Uh, Rod, the first thing, and this is going to sound strange, but the first thing is you start with patience. God is going to make you more and more like him every day. But that doesn't happen overnight. The quicker you surrender your heart to him, the faster you're giving him the opportunity to work. But be patient. It's so hard because we're hard on ourselves. So just be very, very patient. Uh, and then, of course, yeah, learn, learn your Bible. Start reading it. If you don't understand it, don't worry about it. When I first got saved, I'm a legal pad guy, so I'd always have a legal pad. If something I didn't understand, I made a note of the verse and the question that I had. But I didn't dwell on it. I would keep reading. Turn pages in your Bible. Learn who Jesus is and let him speak to your heart. Prayer. That's spending time with the Lord, just talking to him. Then, of course, always be aware of his presence. That, for me, was the single biggest thing. As a brand new believer, I just wanted to be with Jesus, and he made me more and more like him. So, Rod, there's some foundational things. We have 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program. I am Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I don't know why the phones are quiet uh, today, but we'd love your live calls and questions at 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. By the way, tonight, our my son, Paul, uh, Paul's son and mine, is coming, Terry, uh, to, he'll be at... at church and uh, he's bringing his friend Derek, his co-worker who uh, is actually going to play the violin behind our Wednesday night worship group and uh, I'm excited to hear. So all they have to do is get through Austin traffic in time and they'll be here. So they're on their way. Here is the question from Anonymous that I said was going to take a little bit more time. What would you say to a woman whose husband is not interested in being clean or smelling good? Also, my husband smokes and wants me to kiss him, but I can't. Oh, Anonymous, you're not going to like my answer. At the same time, uh, I want you to know I'm a clean freak and my heart goes out to you. So please understand that this is coming from a very, very compassionate heart. God's word says that your body's not your own. It belongs to your husband. Um... I would tell him that it makes it very difficult for you when he's not clean, when he doesn't smell good. Um, ask him to stop smoking. Um, but but if he's not going to do those things, then your job is to win his heart and pray for him. Let God deal with him, but you do your part. And again, because I'm such a clean freak, this is awful. Let me talk to the husbands for a minute, okay? Men, we have a responsibility to put our best foot forward always with our wives. Remember, she is the most important ministry that any of us have. We have to be on our best behavior. We have to be kind. We have to be clean. There's no excuse for not being clean. My grandma used to tell me, uh, she'd say, Ronnie, you can be poor and clean at the same time. And she was right. It's the way we were raised. My grandma used to say, a lot of soap, a lot of clean. And, and that's, men, we have to be faithful in our representation of Jesus. Remember, in our homes, we're his ambassador. It means we don't have a right to our own agenda. It means that we don't have the right 
to cause other people, especially the people closest to us, pain. Our responsibility is to represent Jesus. When you were dating your wife, or when you decided that you were in love with her, you didn't show up without taking a bath or shower. When you wanted to kiss her, you didn't light up a cigarette and then kiss her. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, you love your wives the way Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. And the only way to do that is to make her feel like the most beautiful, the most precious, the most loved woman on the face of the earth. Now, if you say, well, she doesn't act like that, well, it's your responsibility to make her feel beautiful. When you do, she will respond, I promise. Your wives should not be in a position to have to put up with your bad personal hygiene. It's an amazing thing to me that we have these kind of conversations. Evidently, we're pretty selfish. So men, listen to Anonymous's pain. Paul and I often sort of joke with one another. I don't think we're really joking, but we never would have lasted if she smoked or if I smoked. Why is it so difficult for us to do something for Jesus in order to rightly represent him in our family? So men, grow up, clean up, look good, smell good, pay attention to your health, and then you're going to find out your wife is a wonderful reflection of your godly leadership. Now to you, Anonymous, I'm so sorry, but your body's not your own. Let Jesus use you to win your husband to him. And I assume he is not a believer because somebody who is a Christian simply wouldn't put you in this position. If he says he's a believer, then very nicely ask him to act like it. But don't withhold yourself from him. Don't withhold yourself from him. In fact, use your body to win him to Christ. Now, there's going to be a whole bunch of women who think that's the worst answer in the world. But it's the biblical answer. So please spare me the emails. (laughs) 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Martin. He says, do you believe that we are in the very last days? Um, Martin, I I don't have to believe it. I know we are. Now, if you mean the very last days, is Jesus going to come today or tomorrow? Um, Probably not. You know, every single... Um, generation has thought that they were the last. They look at the things that are going on in the world and, and say, well, things can't get any worse than this, but they always do. By definition, the biblical last days began with Jesus' ascension into heaven. We saw him leave. He's going to come back, the angel said, in the same way you saw him leave. Well, everything between the ascension and his return, um, we call it for Christians, the rapture of the church, uh, for the world, it's Jesus when he comes in judgment. prior to setting up his millennial kingdom. That's by definition the last days. But we all have a tendency to look, and we all do it. I do it myself. Sometimes, God, how much worse can things get? Look at the world that we live in, and look how things are turning out. You know, things are no worse today than they were in Corinth when Paul was ministering at the Church of Corinth in the middle of the very first century. Sexual sin, homosexual sin, was rampant. Public display of sin. There were a thousand shrine prostitutes, male and female, always available for service. I say that with a heart hurting heart. And this Sex was very public, very open. It caused Paul 
no end of pain and grief. But that's what he encountered. Well, we have the same thing. If I were to think about the very last days, my first thought would be the love of many will grow cold. I think we see that happening, Martin. People will be, Paul says, without natural affection at the very, very end. That's actually a Greek phrase that describes the the instinctive love a mother has for a child. We see kids being left, kids being aborted. 65 million children in this country alone aborted since 1973. So yeah, I would think we're in the last days. But remember this, Jesus is patient, unwilling that any should perish. And if we'd remember that, we'd really get busy instead of wanting to be out of here. And I want to be out of here. I want the rapture of the church to happen. So that's full disclosure. But I want to take advantage of every minute that he leaves me here to win people to Christ. Because whether people believe it or not, and the rest of most of this world has rejected Jesus Christ. They don't want to stop sinning. They don't want anybody, even God, telling them they can't sin. But the truth of the matter is, everyone who says no to Jesus Christ is going to spend eternity in torment. We call it hell. They're going to spend eternity, not because they had to, but because they chose to. Nobody gets to heaven because they're a good person, or a nice person, or a successful person. Nobody can say, well, I'm as good as you. Everybody's as good as me. The standard for heaven is perfection. And God has built us all with that instinctive hole in our heart, that knowledge that there's more, there's something more, something greater. My dad, a long time ago when Paul and I were just coming to Texas for the first time, we made a trip out to see him. Just let him know we were leaving California. We're going to Texas. What are you going to do? I'm going to start a church. Don't try to preach to me, he said. And then for no explanation, with no explanation, he looked at me and he said, well, you know, Ronnie, you have to be a fool not to believe that somebody's out there and we're going to answer to him. And I said, Dad, you just pronounced guilt on yourself. And my dad, as hard as he was, became a deathbed, literally a deathbed conversion and gave his heart to Jesus. Well, our passion, Martin, ought to be telling people about Jesus. Everybody, everywhere we go. Our passion has to be sparing people judgment. How could we say we love somebody and then not address eternity? How can we say that we love somebody but we're okay with them making their own choices? Now, salvation comes from God. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. But He uses people. And our job in these last days is to take every minute of every time. The Apostle Paul says, redeem the time making the most of every opportunity. Well, if we'll do that, then God will use you to change people's eternal destination. And that's really the only thing that matters. So Martin, yeah, I believe we're in the last days. Are we in the very, 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 very last days? I don't know. Personally, I'm hoping Jesus comes before Tuesday. (laughs) 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Javier. He says, Pastor Ron, it seems like the church in the United States is losing its influence. Have we lost the battle in the culture? If so, how then can we have any hope? Javier, our hope is in Christ. You know, the rapture that I was just talking about uh, with with Martin's question uh, is called the blessed hope. Our hope isn't in our culture. Our hope isn't in, in, in suddenly a bunch of unbelievers agreeing with us. The church in the United States is losing influence, and we've lost influence, uh, frankly, because we're a pretty bad representation of the Christ that we serve. What did Gandhi say one time? He said, um, 
I'm quite fond of Christ. I'm less fond of Christians. Now, that doesn't excuse Gandhi. He still is going to bow a knee and his tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's going to be a, a moment of terror for him that's going to last for eternity. He's not without excuse. I mean, he is without excuse. However, our responsibility individually is to rightly represent Jesus. You know, Galatians chapter 5, we have a list of the fruit of the Spirit. Everybody listening to this program is familiar with it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Paul says, against such things there is no law. If we'll walk in love, and that word picture in Greek is very important because it's love is singular. It's sort of like love is the overcoat that goes around all of those other things. Love makes doing all of those other things possible. If I love somebody, for example, I will be kind to them. Imagine me going home, Javier, and telling Paula, I love you, and then screaming at her. Imagine me going home and telling my children when they were small, Daddy loves you, and then yelling at them or being abusive to them. So love wraps up in it, kindness, and and the others that I mentioned. If we would walk in the Spirit, if we would demonstrate those characteristics, then our Jesus would be very attractive to people. I think too often our church, we've had a lot of questions this week already regarding politics and preaching them from the pulpit. That's not the job of the church. It's not the job of a pastor. The job of pastor is to give people Jesus day in and day out and to rightly represent him. I think if we would go to work tomorrow, everybody, believer and unbeliever, we go to work. A believer could be as, as opposed as he or she might want to be. But if the believers would go and Jesus was there, we would win the hearts of so many people we couldn't build churches fast enough to contain them. People working hard trying to support their families. Our job is to be a source of encouragement, a source of hope. Have we lost the battle in the culture? Well, according to Paul's second letter to Timothy, which is the most personal of all of his letters, it's the letter he says, I I, I know I'm going to die. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness. He tells Timothy to watch his life and doctrine closely. Doctrine matters because what we believe is who we are. It's how we're to live. We're to watch our lives always with uh, an eye toward this moment where judgment is going to be cast upon this world. But he also says things are going to get worse that this falling away, even falling away some of the church. We have churches now, as you've heard on this program before, Javier, when I get to questions about churches that are gay-affirming and gay-approving and just want everybody to get along so they can fill seats. Those kinds of compromises are costing us our position in this world to influence the ability to influence we haven't lost the battle yet I'm still praying I hope you're praying for one last revival before Jesus comes but whether that happens or not our hope Javier is in Christ our hope isn't in circumstances our hope isn't in returning prayer to the schools our hope is in Jesus And it's his will, not our will, that's going to be done. If, in fact, we are living in the last days. And if those last days are at the very last days, and I personally believe we are, then it makes our mission here all the more urgent. And we do that by looking at Jesus. He is the only solution for a lost and dying world. Javier, as Christians... Our job, forget the church, the general church, but that you're a part of the church. You do your part. God will always bring people around you 
Wanda wants to know, Pastor Ron, do we lose our salvation if we refuse to forgive someone who hurts us? You're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, Wanda. Um, Jesus basically says if you refuse to forgive others, then his Father won't forgive you. Now, there's a couple of things we have to know about the Sermon on the Mount. This is very, very important. Uh, Just as the law was unattainable for Jews... Paul says that the law was the schoolmaster. It's supposed to, to, to direct us or lead us to Christ. I can't keep it. I can't do it. Well, Jesus says, well, because you can't, I did. That's very important. Well, the Sermon on the Mount, it's a very Jewish message. That's the context. Jesus' ministry was entirely Jewish. We forget this, and we end up pulling our hair out because we can't do it, and the devil beats us up with guilt. Uh, if somebody hit, strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek to him, um, and, and then this issue of forgiveness. I'm going to do in the message tonight um, the importance of, of fighting bitterness, of holding on to unforgiveness is a large part of Second Samuel chapter 17. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he is raising the standard above the law. He's trying to let his audience know that if, even if they think by having the law, they're saved by the law, Jesus raises it. You've heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's what the law says. But then he says this, but I say unto you. And then he raises stakes. If you look at a woman with lust, you're already guilty of adultery. Who hasn't done that? Well, this whole issue of forgiveness, Wanda, is exactly that. For the Christian, forgiveness ought to be assumed. Remember Peter? The other disciples getting on his nerves. Finally, comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, how many times when we forgive someone, forgive someone who sinned against us? Seven times? And Jesus, I think, with a smile on his face and shaking his head, sort of said, Peter, 70 times seven. And that's not an exact number, 490, and then you're in the clear, Peter. It's just the idea there is that we're to keep on forgiving as long as people are repentant. When they ask and they appear to be repentant, we're to forgive. The idea there is not to hold on. And our practical takeaway from that passage, and remember it's a Jewish message so we can't take it as though he was speaking to us. He's saying, I'm going to do a work at a time when I have so forgiven this world that the people who really belong to me will be as eager to forgive those who have hurt them as I am eager to forgive them. So no, we don't lose our salvation. But here's what we do lose, Wanda. We lose our fellowship with Jesus. We lose our fellowship with Jesus. Imagine, Jesus, when you get up every morning, he wants to be with you. If you're holding on to unforgiveness, then he can't. Our older son, Ronnie, when he was a little baby, he would come running into our bedroom, jump on the bedroom, and the first thing he would do is get on top of his mom, and with his hands, he kind of hold her, her eye open. Mom, mom, are you awake yet? And, of course, Paula would say, I'm awake now. Well, that's kind of the way Jesus wants to wake us up every day. I'm here. You ready? But he can't do that if we're holding on to unforgiveness. So we lose our fellowship, our sal- not our salvation. We lose our helper, our friend, the one who loves us. So, Wanda, I hope that helps. Let's go to Scott from Shirt. Scott, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, um, great show today. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you. My question is, I'm studying, um, actually I'm preparing for a Bible study this Sunday, uh, in Nehemiah chapter 5, and um, the the book we're using has a, a commentary in there. Um, we're doing the first 13 verses, and I, I struggled with this this morning, and you kind of touched on something else that made me think of it on my drive into work here tonight. Um the commentary was about when the uh, when Nehemiah. Um, I'm sorry, I don't have the exact verse. It's it's a later, maybe in the last two or three verses there, where Nehemiah basically confronts the uh, the, the the Jewish people that are actually um, 
using or they're um, uh, abusing the other people by charging them exorbitant interest rates and everything, putting them into a very destitute situation. And the commentary said something about to the effect that um, what they're doing is um, um, affecting their relationship with God. In other words, it's separating them from God. And in the Old Testament, I kind of understand that. But in the New Testament contents, that sounds kind of works-oriented. Um, to me, it seems more, and, and, I, and here's where I want you, maybe you can comment on this, but it seems to me more that our, related, our relationship with God is reflected by those activities that we partake in. So if we're living a sinful life, it's because of, of, of not focusing or not, not communing with God. Um, although I know sin separates us from God, but it, it seems that in a New Testament construct that we need to, I mean, if you're, if you're going to counsel somebody on this and they're, and they're having some sin issue, which you had mentioned earlier when you were um, on one of your, uh, um, I don't know who they, if they wrote in or what, um, but th- you said that kind of they need to, you know, they, you need to come alongside them and show them the scripture. Um, but th- the relationship with Jesus is what's going to take them out of that sinful lifestyle or help them. And of course, they need to make the physical adjustment yeah. to stay out of it. But um, Scott, let me let I don't me stop. Understand let, what I'm, where I'm going with yeah, this with the two? Yeah, um, I, I do. But but unfortunately, we're we're about to get cut off by the computer here. The music is about to come. Here's what I'd suggest you do: go to calvaryessay.com. I've got my comment written on Nehemiah uh, chapter 6. You can listen to the study, but but I have my notes there as well. It explains the chapter, and then I go into a whole thing on New Testament application for this. And if you don't mind, Friday at the beginning of the program, uh, my producer is going to remind me to, to address this question in some detail uh, because it's too important to go over it quickly. So thank you very much, Scott. Hey, tonight, Wednesday, 2 Samuel chapter 17. Tomorrow, Paul is in studio. We'll see you then. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The word to stand on for life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.